connection between not having those things and a high, high increase of being involved in the criminal justice system. So we've taken a look at those, sort of that, that framework of it from the first two episodes. Today we're going to take a little bit different um, look at it here locally in Indianapolis and what we're going to do and try to address some of those issues. So I'll introduce our special guest today um, is Mike Woods. Uh, say hi, Mike. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Uh, Mike is, uh, uh, well, we'll let Mike tell his own story, but he's currently the CEO of an organization called the Dream Center, which we'll get into here in a minute. But Mike, talk a little bit about uh, yourself, your background, connections you've had with the homeless community. So I started really working in healthcare when I was 16 years old as a dishwasher and moved my way up to various leadership roles and was always involved in church and a pastor, a youth pastor, outreach pastor, and had the opportunity to really serve the homeless uh, population and families living in poverty, not just here in Indiana, but other um, states and countries as well. And it was really during that work as I was working in healthcare and working in ministry and doing what a lot of other nonprofits do is passing out food. We were passing out groceries to some Section 8 um, communities here in Indianapolis and some low-income um, affordable housing communities here in Indianapolis while also passing out food once a week to the homeless. And what I did was just like any other nonprofit, Brad, you know, a, a faith-based nonprofit, they do a couple things. You meet someone, you give them something to eat, you pray for them, and then you try to connect them to organizations that can help. And from 2014 to 2019, we fed, this is just crazy, because it was just really me and a group of students. Uh, Devin was part of that in high school. We, we fed 38,000 people from 2014 to 2019 with a group of teenagers, the homeless once a week and families once a week at two different communities. And I began to refer these families out to um, nonprofit providers. And, you know, here in Indianapolis, there are 564 nonprofits, not in Indiana, Marion County, that Damn. deal with poverty. 564 nonprofits. And from 2014 to 2019, I began to tour those communities looking for the next step for a family we were feeding, for a homeless person on the street, for a family that was in need on the west side, southwest side, um, on the northeast side, we went to two, a couple different communities over there. And every nonprofit had a piece of the puzzle. There were some nonprofits that were amazing with some temporary housing. There were some nonprofits that were amazing with some education, some workforce training, some health care. But I couldn't find the Dream Center model like in Los Angeles. My, my families, we've known the Dream Center and Los Angeles Temple um, ever since my grandmother was involved with them back in the early 90s when they started. And the reason why I've always loved the Dream Center is because it's a one-stop shop. You can go to the Dream Center, you can have temporary housing, meals, um, health and wellness, financial literacy, career training, the spiritual support, and after 12 to 18 months, you are set up for success. So that was, that's what I was looking for here in Indianapolis. And I, I, Amazing nonprofits, some of them are just absolutely incredible, but I couldn't find the holistic wraparound services. And so at the end of 2019, that's when I decided to take the bull by the horns and let's just pull it together. The homeless population is a piece of the bigger issue of poverty. You know, it's crazy. We don't think of Indianapolis necessarily a big city. I think it's because we live here. Right. And if, you know, 
you know, you can typically on a normal day when there's no traffic issues and everybody drives the speed limit and stays out of the right lanes, then you can typically go around the circle here in Indianapolis in about 45 minutes to an hour. You get around the entire city. That's not been the case in the last two years, but normally you can. So we don't think our, our city is very big. But what's really interesting, if you look at the stats, there's a couple of periodicals produced by Savi at the Polis Center at IUPUI. There are 100, this is just crazy, 171 thousand families living at or below the line of poverty here in the circle city 170,000 171,000 what was the catalyst that like made you even interested in poverty and the homeless crisis like what 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 made you be like I want to solve this issue or help solve this issue so when you have a healthcare background there's just one thing you focus on all the time and that is what is the root cause of this symptom and how can you treat not just the symptom, but the root cause so they never need your health care provider again? And that's what I did for over 20 years in various um, areas of, of health care that I was working in in long-term care. So I'm kind of wired to look at everything as let's not put a Band-Aid on the symptom. Right. Let's fix the root cause. And you kind of think about, look at everything we've done in America in the last 50 years. I mean, technology's through the roof, communication's through the roof medications through the roof. If someone would have said to somebody in, in 1991 or 1985, hey, we're going to have a pill. If you have HIV, you can take this pill and you're undetectable. No one, everyone would have said it's not possible. Right. Yeah. So look at everything we've done since we started tracking things in the 60s. But poverty has remained at 12% of the census of America since we started tracking it in the 60s. We haven't moved the needle for poverty. And what's interesting- It hasn't increased? I would assume it has at least increased. No, it just stays 12%. 12% of America. You think our population goes through the roof and the 12% of people living in poverty nationwide stays at 12%. We can decrease everything else around our country, but we can't touch the root cause of poverty. And I think it's really cool what you guys are doing with this podcast because it's, it's related. It's not just homeless. It's not just criminal justice. It's not just all the different movements we have. It's a big picture, and I think it can be solved. But what I found touring these nonprofits, this is really interesting. And if you're a nonprofit leader and you're hearing this, sorry, but it's just I toured your spot and you gave me the tour. And so <laughs> there, what I found was there's nearly zero synergy and connection and navigation of services between nonprofits. Not only that, and I'm, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm, a, I'm an ordained minister, and uh, you know what's interesting too not only are there 564 nonprofits, but there's 809 churches in, Ma in Marion County who all do something to help people. Some sort of outreach. And so you think of the millions and millions and millions of dollars. When you look at the money that, you know, the Lilly Foundation and CICF and all these organizations have pumped into fixing poverty, um, it meets a lot of people's needs. Thankfully, people can stay alive because there's shelters, there's food, there's emergency health care. But while we're putting a Band-Aid on the symptom, you don't, in the healthcare model, you don't see the effort and the same amount of money flowing into preventing the problem. So if a hospital, for example, or a nursing home or a doctor's office, all they did was treat your symptom, um, they would be out of business because they're never going to fix the problem. Right. right? You're just going to keep coming back. I mean, they do really well at first, but... Yeah, they'd be making some money. Eventually. Well, you, I don't know. If, <laughs> a rehab centers, they still exist, and they just put a Band-Aid on the shit. They don't really fix much. Well, if you look at the uh, Center for Medicare Services and the guidelines for billing in Medicare and Medicaid, hospitals are now penalized if they don't fix the problem. So if, if, you, if I go to a hospital today and I have a GI issue, 
and they bill Medicare to, to fix my GI issue. If I go back to the hospital within 30, 60, 90 days, they don't get a second payment. It comes out wow. of the first payment because they didn't solve the problem. And you know what's happening across the nation? Hospitals have better outcomes. And my thought has always been, if nonprofits were held to a different standard, all of a sudden, you see that 12% begin to decrease. That, that, that would only be the case for Medicare and Medicaid users, wouldn't it, though? No, that's Medicare and Medicaid is the standard by which every hospital is held to. So it doesn't matter if it's insurance, private insurance, or Medicaid. It's still the same standard across the country when it comes to health care providers that are licensed by Medicare and Medicaid. In the federal government. Well, and it, yeah, it trickles down to all the private insurance because exactly. they follow the same type of yeah. rules. And so right. that's when I begin to really look at things differently as I'm referring these families out. We'd have a family come through our line. We deliver groceries. We pray for them. And then I'd see that family again next week and the next week and the next week. And I'd say, hey, did you ever call so-and-so? Hey, did you go fill out the, uh, this application? Hey, did you go here? Yeah, but I never heard anything back. And yeah, that's going to help with the housing. But I, I need a place to take my kids during the day while I work on my workforce workforce training. And yeah, I had that job for a while, but then they changed my hours because they're getting paid under the table. They're getting paid twelve dollars an hour at a gas station, and so all these all these nonprofits are designed to help in their little area, and they do a really good job. But because there's no navigation of services, it's actually creating this perpetual cycle of never getting out of the cycle. Because right. if you think of this, we're all sitting in a stool. If you look at your stool, you've got four legs, I think. Yes. Or five, maybe. <laughs> uh, well, for this analogy, it should be four. So we're all sitting on this four-legged stool. You know, what happens with someone in poverty is one of the legs gets strong and another leg starts getting strong. But if just one leg is weak, the whole stool is going to come crashing right. down. Right. It has to be a holistic approach that solves the symptom and the root cause at the same time in yeah, order to navigate that person out of poverty forever. It's kind of like we're throwing them the life raft over and over again, but never getting them out of the water. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly Probably like a deflated life raft. Just enough to keep your It's the thought water. that counts. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. And so you got to think like that's, that's, that's what happens. And it's not just here in Indiana. It's everywhere. You know, I've, I've served homeless population um, here in Indianapolis and, and Detroit, Michigan, Flint, Michigan, um, Skid Row, and the similarities are this. No one wakes up one day and decides I'm going to be homeless. Sure, there are backpackers and, and young people that like that that want to live, you know, on, on a beach and under a tree. Right. And um, But that's very few and far between. So when people say they choose, there's people that choose it, sure. That's probably 0.0005% of the homeless population in America. Right. But most of the time, it's multi-generational. There's a great book by J.D. Vance called Hillbilly Elegy. I don't know if you ever read it. I, I know of it. I have not read it. <laughs> I strongly uh, recommend it. I mean, really, if there's anything that defines my family, it's the Hillbilly Elegy <laughs> book for sure. And what it talks about is, you know, people from the white white Appalachian poverty area, those families moved into the Midwest to work at GM and Delco. But they brought that multi-generational addiction, the poverty mindset with them. And so when you go into these towns like Kokomo and Fort Wayne and Anderson and Mason, Ohio and different places in the Midwest, there's extreme amounts of poverty because the multi-generational mindset of poverty was never broken. Although grandma and grandpa had a great job, still the, the chain of poverty wasn't bro broken inside their mind and inside their spirit. And that is something that connects all the homeless people I've met. I've met a lot of homeless people. And here in Indianapolis, which is really interesting, you know, we have on any given night about, about 1,000 to 1,200 people living in low-rent motels. 
um, across, there's 21 motel campuses in Indianapolis where families live. We have the opportunity to serve about 400 of those families every other Saturday at the Dream Center. But they move into a motel thinking, I just got to save up to get an apartment, not realizing because poverty starts on the inside, it's on the outside, and it's a mindset with money. They're spending $390 a week at this nasty motel living, and they're stuck. You say it was a thousand or thousands? It's about anywhere from a thousand to twelve hundred, sometimes fifteen hundred people any given night here in Indianapolis. So you think three hundred a week? I mean, yeah, three ninety a week. Sometimes four ninety. Pretty nice apartment. Yeah, exactly. And so you think about what is the what is the natural uh, pathway for that individual? They're going to live in the motels for a while. Then they're going to go to one of the shelters, and we've got great shelters. I mean, Wheeler Mission is absolutely phenomenal, and so is uh, Dayspring and the Good News Ministry. I mean, there's amazing places. They have a capacity. It's right. not like they have thousands of beds every right. single day. So they're going to go to a shelter for a while. Then they're going to go crash on a friend's couch, and then they're going to live in their car when they have one, when it's not towed, and then they're going to go back to the hotels. And eventually their kids are going to be taken away, and eventually mom or dad or both are going to be living in a back alley or on the street. Right. And that is the perpetual cycle. And so sometimes we celebrate statistics in the nonprofit world. Well, this person got off the street. They're, they're no longer living on the street. Yeah, but they're living in a hotel. Right. So they're right. still housing insecure, but they're still in poverty. Right. Not only that, out of the 171,000 people living in poverty, this is crazy, 46,000 of those individuals have children under the age of six. Only 46,000? 46,000 out of the 171. A lot of them have kids. But we focus on the, the families that have children under the age of six. Oh, okay, okay. And out of the 171,000 people, 95,000 of them do not know you can get health insurance for free. They've never, ever applied. And so this it's just a big picture of poverty that we look to address at the Dream Center. It's not It's bigger than food. Absolutely, we introduce you know prayer. We share the love of Jesus with them and all that. We share the gospel, but it's bigger than that. And we, right. we kind of look at like what started me on this kind of holistic pathway. You read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see what Jesus did. Jesus fed, Jesus prayed, and Jesus moved people on the way. And that's what we believe we're called to do is not just feed, not just pray. We do that, but we want to actually provide uh, real solutions to these individuals. So we built a pathway out of poverty. Uh, 12 to 18 months, and if they do it, poverty's in a rearview mirror forever. Well, yeah, and the, you know, when my uh, sister passed away, it had helped my niece get the Social Security benefit, mm-hmm. uh, the death benefit. It was complicated for me as an attorney. Yeah. A tremendous amount of roadblocks that were put up to, to just uh, establish something that, by law, she was entitled to get. It was, it was extremely cumbersome. So I... You know, you imagine somebody being in a situation where you're, you're housing insecure and to get the bare minimum stuff that you need to help yourself get out of that has so many roadblocks. You've told the story about uh, having to travel to the different spots you would need to go to. Tell, yeah. tell that story. So, one, you know, everyone, when you start something like this, everyone has a solution in their mind. And I always listen and nod and I'm graceful. And I'm like, thanks. I'll never forget this one guy. I was like, I don't see why you need to do that. You know, Hoosiers are really good about providing solutions from behind the keyboard. And so, you know, I don't know why, you know, I, I imagine his voice is like this. I don't know why you need to do that. We have all these places here. Just get on the bus. Something. Well, maybe the guy's right. I've never been on a city bus here in Indianapolis. It was fucking terrible. So, uh, <laughs> so what I do, um, I go down. This is before the red line and the green line and the blue line or whatever lines we got, the purple line. I, uh, I went down to uh, Ohio Street and got the bus passes and thought, okay, where do I need to go? Well, if I'm a 
single dad and I got a toddler. I'm going to need to go to the Department of Family Resources to get my food stamps and the WIC office to get some milk and diapers and things like that. I'm going to need to go to Ivy Tech to enroll in some workforce training because maybe I could be an HVAC guy. I know the training's there. I could probably go for free. I'm going to go to Dress for Success because I need some clothes, and I'm also going to go by Willer Mission because I need lunch. And so I write this stuff, and this stuff is relatively close. We're talking downtown, west side, midtown, east side. That's what we got to do. And I thought, okay, this is going to take me a while. According to the bus schedule, yeah, it should have only would... taken two hours. No. Six and a half hours later, I went to two of the six places. Yeah, right. the buses are and, so slow. And you think to yourself, like, I'm a single dad with a toddler. The toddler's got to go to the bathroom. The toddler's hungry. And then I want to take a nap. I want to take a nap, and I'm around people I don't even know, and it's not like there's the best clientele on the bus. And so I thought, man, no wonder people don't try. Because yeah. you got to think, like, I'm a relative. I mean, I don't think I'm very intelligent. I just talk. I just learn how to say the right things. But I'm a relatively driven, intelligent individual, and I was over it halfway through. And you think, right. and I've got my bills paid, and I have a place to go to. That's nice. And um, I used to have a couch before Devin took it. But I like all those things, you know. <laughs> and so I'm comfortable in life. Like I, I'm. I have all my needs are met, and I was over it. And can you imagine? Not knowing where you're going to sleep tonight, but you've got to get on this bus and and spend go all, to all your these day in piss soaked seats. And then here's the crazy thing: online it said these are the hours of these places. I won't tell you which ones, but I went to the out of the two places I went to, one had a sign on the door: "Sorry, we're closed today." Well, it's going to be a week before <laughs> I even right. get enough money to get the bus pass to go back, and hopefully they're going to be open. Because a lot of these places don't answer the phone yeah, used to an don't. automated system because they're so overwhelmed anyway. They can't take the phone And calls. how defeating to be spending that much time, your money to get there, exactly. and then to see, exactly. you can see where people just throw the towel in again. So to put it in perspective, I live 17 minutes from downtown, like the heart of downtown, and yet my ex would take the bus to get to work downtown, and she would have to leave the house an hour and a half earlier exactly. for, the bu- and for only a 17-minute drive. Um, and I also wanted to say, so you said, you know, about an average of 1,100 people uh, in motels. And if they're paying 300 a week, I think you said it was like 398. 390. So I just did the math for 300 a week times 52. For the full year, they're paying 17160000 Now, of course, that's split between all these people. But if you divide that by 1,100, they're paying about $15,600. And that's assuming they're getting the same rate the entire time. And that's and then what's interesting about that too, is you kind of look at I think uh, something that we have to do to fix poverty nationwide, is really change how we interpret and deal with credit scores. You know, so yeah. this individual who can clearly hustle and make a, that make the money to pay their lease for whatever reason doesn't uh, get approved for an apartment, likely because of their credit score. It's cra- and, it's gotten even worse now. My credit score is in the seven hundreds, and I still get denied. It could be your baby face. It could be. I you look, look 11. You do look 11. But, uh, I mean, the mustache is coming in strong, brother man. I am proud of it. Yeah, you know? I know. With the way it's looking, I, it looks like I'm I mean, you do look 16. Set. You do look 16 now, and I am going to call you, um, well, I, I don't know what More I should call you. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, uh, I'm going to call you Romando, I think. But, I, you know, um, you look at that, for example. I mean, so, you know, here, you know, they go to one place, and, and they pay money. Here's the thing, too. 
they pay an application fee, which is anywhere from $50 to $100. And because they're credit, they don't get it. Well, they can't afford to apply at more than one or two places. Right. And then you look at parts of our town, like the yeah, South. That's 1500 bucks. Like, exactly. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I mean, it's expensive. Right. And then you look at places like on the, you know, Devon, where you're from, on the Southwest side, there's all these kind of loan shark house rental people that yeah. charge 1000 to $2,000 a month for a two-bedroom house. Right. And they're ripping these guys off because... It is big business to take advantage of people that live in poverty. Right. And all of it is this perpetual cycle of we need to change the way we do credit. We need to change access to different things. And nonprofits should work together. Um, I proposed something in the state of Indiana that literally said, hey, I want you to help um, reimburse a part of what we're doing. And if we do not produce results, meaning that we have navigated people off the system, you penalize us and we have to pay back because I guarantee it will work. Right. And so that's why I propose the state of Indiana. Hopefully they'll take it up. And I think there needs to be a level of accountability with nonprofits that they should work together because it's the same millions of dollars that's feeding the same people over and over and over right. and over. Then they bring children into the world and the chances that their children living in poverty is nearly 100%, you know? And so, and then, and so it's, it just grows people and grows the- and grows. Yeah, I really don't like that pervasive mindset of like people want to be homeless because 100% those people exist. But in a place like Indianapolis, maybe one or two people out of all of them are like that. That real that really only exists in places like LA and New York where you already have to be making six figures just to be in the bottom like lowest bracket you can be in that city. So of course, in a situation like that, you're like, just fuck it, like I'm gonna live on the street. You know, you can make sixty thousand and still be living on the street in the middle of LA. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I definitely get, like, that mindset in other, especially more, like, liberal cities that are really freaking expensive. Well, but in Indianapolis, I don't think that just really exists. I mean, the cities where people, it's attractive to live homeless and live in a tent. It's Los Angeles, Miami, Tampa. It's places where you can it's live warm. in a tent and live comfortable. Right. Yeah. It's not in Indianapolis, Detroit, yeah. Flint. Even Denver, there's some people who live in the mountains, and that's their life, and that's okay. But that's such a small amount. I mean, so no one wakes up and says, I want to be homeless. And so... What we decided to do when we were looking at our programming is we wanted to be different. We wanted to serve what we call people who are poised to succeed. You know, are, are you going to be able to take care of all 12% of the people living in poverty? No, but it would be amazing if we could take care of 1%. Right. I mean, nationwide, 1% living in poverty is thousands and thousands of people. Right. And what's really interesting about Indianapolis, this blew my mind. There is a publication, and I'll send it to you guys. There's a publication from Savi um, called Poverty in Marion County. And the poverty rate in Marion County is growing at this massive rate. What's interesting, right now, two people out of every five in Marion County live in poverty, and it's projected by twenty five by 2025 to go up to three. The poverty rate in Indianapolis is growing faster than any other state and than any other city in Indiana. Wow. But what's interesting in this publication from Savi, our rate of poverty is growing faster than any other metropolitan city in America, which is unbelievable to me. And so when you kind of look at all the resources we have, we have more nonprofits here in Indianapolis than pretty much anywhere. 564, 809 churches and Hoosiers are nice and hospitable and they like to help people. And if you kind of look at, even if a 10th of that money, that GDP was pushed through organizations that were focused on the root cause, our poverty would uh, drastically decrease over the next 10 years. That's, those numbers are incredible. I had no idea the the growth. I mean, that's going to be more than half. Exactly. 
That's, uh, that's so crazy. Indiana's population is 6.84 as of 2023. If you helped 1% of that population, it's 68,400 people. Yeah. So even just 1%, you know, it sounds so little on its face, but that what's, is a massive amount one, of people. What's the whole three, city, a big city. What's 3% of 171,000? That's how many people are living in or at below the poverty. Another stat I saw was... 3% was, of that? Yeah. It was like three... You know, I wanted to say it was 3,200 people were living at 128% below the line of poverty. Meaning, percent below. Meaning their income was about five grand a, say, a year. I mean, that's... So 171,000 times 0.03 gives you 5,130. That's yeah. still a substantial amount of people. Yeah. That are uh, at below 5,000 a year. Yeah. That's insane. I mean, there's... You're, you're, you can't afford to eat off no. just that, let alone all the rest of them. I feel successes. like just helping that 5,000 and some people, like you would see a noticeable difference like in our city. Yeah, and what we focus on are the people poised to succeed. So what we did was 20 months of focus groups across the country, you know, working with some of the um, subject matter experts in Los Angeles, New York, who are really putting a lot of effort into it. And then subject matter expert, experts here, such as healthcare providers, social workers, Department of Corrections, social workers and chaplains, and people who are actually in it, you know, really close to the problem. And what we decided to do was we would focus on, we're not a shelter, the Dream Center is not a shelter. So yeah, we're gonna have services open for everybody. Someone can come in and have a meal. Um, but if you're gonna live at the Dream Center, it's gonna be because you are what we, what we determine poised to succeed. And this is what I found out is while we're doing our study, if you are a mother or a father or a single parent, whatever, and you have a child under the age of six, at least one, you have a window of opportunity where you are driven so that you raise that child differently than the way you were raised. It's a window of opportunity. It's a very short one. As soon as that child turns seven, eight, or nine, that window begins to close because you just accepted it again. Also, former foster youth, when a former foster youth turns 18, they get out of the system. They have a window of opportunity where they want to go to college. They want to do this. They want to do that. They want to have the life they've always dreamed about having. That window of opportunity is about till about 24 years old. And Devin, you know this. So Devin, you know this. Uh, you and I ran a bunch of outreaches with a bunch of um, you know, students on the southwest side of Indianapolis. At one point, we had hundreds of kids in that group. And you know a bunch of your friends. You grew up around them. And I did a lot of ministry with them. And what's really interesting, too, a young person, 18 to 24, also has the same window of opportunity. They were raised in poverty, and they do not want to have the life they've always had. And if you kind of look at some of the crimes, even here in Indianapolis, these are young people who just don't want to live in poverty. So they're going to do whatever it takes to get money in their bank, whether it's legal or, or illegal, because they do not want to live in poverty anymore. And I think, too, if we want to see a massive difference in our criminal justice system, the nonprofits and state agencies need to really strategize and have synergy. How do we serve that 18 to 24-year-old to truly break the chain of poverty? Because here's the thing, Brad, all the resources exist. You don't have to create a thing. So at the Dream Center, we decide we're not going to create anything. We're going to create the space and the navigation of services and put all the services under one roof. And then that individual, when they move in, if they're poised to succeed, meaning they're a young family, young single mom, young single dad with children under the age of six, they have a furnished apartment that's excellent. That's another thing. I'll bring that up in a minute. And the former foster youth or just the young 18 to 25-year-old, everything they need, financial literacy, workforce training in healthcare, technology, entrepreneurship, and the trades, daycare, an amazing dining hall. Let's face it, 
y'all know I like to eat. So if I'm not going to eat there, I'm not going to have our people eat there. You know what I'm saying? Like, we may not have New York strip every night, but there's going to be some chicken breasts or something, or a cheeseburger or something thrown in there. Come on, somebody. Like, if I ain't going to eat it, why would I have someone else eat it? And everything's going to be under that roof. But here's the thing, too, while I was touring these nonprofits, and I'm not bashing on anybody, but this is just reality. The nonprofits that had housing support typically was a large room with a bunch of bunks and the families kind of all slept together. And I would ask those executive directors, what is your success rate? It was very, very low. And the reason why it was very, very low, uh, eventually, because there wasn't privacy, that single mom or that single dad would go crash on a friend's couch. They didn't know these people. Yeah, they're not safe either. I mean, from our first guest, he he was getting plenty of stories of sexual assault and drug use and things of the like. So, I mean, it's so hard. Imagine like uh, maybe it's not like this for most people, but when I go to a hotel for the first time and I go to sleep, even for like three, four days after the fact, like it's off. I sleep worse. Uh, I stay up later. Um, It's just harder to sleep because I'm not used to the area. I couldn't imagine doing that with the room filled with eight other strangers. Exactly. And so what we wanted to do is have a campus big enough where every single mom, every family, every former foster youth have their own furnished apartment and everything they need's in there. It's clean. It smells good. You know, if you check into the Conrad, the JW, the Bottle Works, the Iron Works, there's a smell pumped through the building. It's one of the easiest things you can do. You get the stuff, you drill a hole, you pour it in. It's a good day. Uh, it's really easy to do that in the building. It's not that hard. The reason why I know that is I go to fancy hotels. I'm like, let me see your HVAC system. They're like, okay, you're a terrorist. And I'm like, no, I just want to see what how you pump your smell through. There was one, and I won't name it, that literally has a fan, a hole, a diffuser, and it's just blown in. Like, that's it. And that's um, incredible to me. And so, like, there's so many ways that you can make it excellent, and it doesn't have to cost millions of dollars. But what I found was all these organizations that have housing support and the ones that did not – they had communal living – Gym-type showers, everyone goes to showers together, everyone sleeps in the same bunk and all that. They did not have a great success rate because if there's one thing that our culture has evolved into over the last 50 years is the need and the emphasis on privacy and dignity. I don't, you know, I think 20, 30, 40 years ago, that didn't matter as much uh, because communal living was more of a reality. You know, even you go to a gym, it's not the same gym showers that it used to be. It used oh, to be a no. big room. Now everything's private. Everything. Yeah. So we live in a world that we live in a culture and a society that puts a bunch of emphasis on privacy and dignity, but yet our nonprofits have no privacy and dignity. I think there's like that really pervasive thought process that, you know, homeless people are lazy and because of that, they don't deserve privacy. They don't deserve yeah. security. And, you know, that may be true for quite a few of them, but at some point, even the laziest person is going to be like, I'm sick and tired of this shit. That's a really good point, Devin, because I was doing an outreach. I'll never forget. We were doing an outreach in Skid Row and had a lot of people there. And what I like to do if I'm doing it for two or three days, you know, Brad's been to Skid Row with me a few times. Uh, got a few new girlfriends while he was there. It's fun. So I was <laughs> glad, you know, I mean, everyone good wins. Thing my wife doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> everyone wins, you know. And uh, so we're hanging out. But when I do, uh, uh, when I know I'm going to have ongoing outreaches, I always survey, I do a survey and I say, hey, what do you want to eat? And we did that at the hotels. At the hotels, we used to be passing out Chick-fil-A because um, I thought that's a win. There's a lot of protein in the sandwich. And, right. you know, how many people, you know, living in poverty just had Chick-fil-A? It's kind of like the rich people food. It's the rich Popeyes, you no, know? No, it definitely right. was. Yeah. Before, like, I had, especially my own money, Chick-fil-A was, like, 
when people came into the high school with Chick-fil-A, I was like, okay, yeah, they they're, they have rich parents. Yeah, exactly. That was all it took. That was all yeah. it took. But you know what's interesting? So I did a survey once, and I said, what do you want to eat? And everyone wanted Lunchables. And so let me tell you why. It's because they could take five or six of those Lunchables in their little fridge and stack them up, and yep. they actually have two or three meals. Yeah. Right. And I was so – we serve – and, you know, this is really interesting. We were doing our outreach in Skid Row, and I was surveying some people. I, I asked a, one of our volunteers – Hey, walk down this alley, take a friend, um, take a big stick, and uh, survey and ask people what do they want take to eat. Take a big eat? stick. <laughs> you know, you know, ask people what they want to eat tomorrow. And I'll never forget this guy. And he didn't mean anything by it. It was just a mindset. But he was like, what difference does it make? They should be glad we're bringing it. And I, I looked at him and said, so tonight when we go to the restaurant, when you order, I'm going to stop you and say, what difference does it make? You should be glad he's bringing it. Right. And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, I go, yeah, because you're paying for it, so you should be treated differently. Right. And uh, he got a little little, little ass whooping from the reverend and then uh, went on his <laughs> merry way. And, and so I think, too, like when you're looking at the approach to poverty, we can't ignore the – the factors that matter in every other area of society, privacy, dignity, individualism. And people should be able to eat what they want to eat. People should be able to stay in a, in a, in a private, clean, very secure place and then have those wraparound services. And so that's what we're building. We're really excited. and We believe it's going to make a massive difference. And um, we're, we're looking forward to, like, like I said, we're not going to try to solve it for a whole 171,000. But if we can slowly crack the code, um, and decrease the rate of poverty by 1%, 2%, half percent over the next two, three years, over the next five, over the next 10, then we know that we've uh, actually stumbled on a model that could be easily replicated throughout the country. Because all you need is a healthcare provider, an education provider, and a place that has housing that has their own bedrooms and bathrooms. And uh, on the other side of the pandemic, uh, let me just say, if you're a nonprofit listening and you want to buy something like this, Hotel owners are eager to talk uh, because they are just about done owning a hotel. And so hotels are great for this kind of model because everyone has a room, everyone has a bathroom, everyone has a shower. And that's all you need. And then you bring in your other navigators. And the cool thing is, 211 in the state of Indiana, uh, amazing people. We just had some meetings with them yesterday. All the navigation services already exist and it's already funded by the state. So all you really need to do is provide the space and the navigation right. to connect it together. Well, you mentioned a, a word that you've now said it several times. I was thinking right before you said it, and that's dignity. To me, if somebody doesn't have dignity, then you're not gonna you're not gonna get connected to them where they're gonna change their circumstances. Exactly. You've got to give them that, and I think it's connected to dignity is connected to self confidence, yeah. uh, to security. Hundred percent. And if you don't have that as as a, if you don't give them that to start with, then you're gonna just keep them in that perpetual cycle where they're. You're just throwing them afloat to keep them where they're at and not yeah. really changing their their circumstance. Um, you can't you can't change poverty until you change the mindset of people living in poverty that they don't deserve to live in it. Right, that they deserve something different. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and another thing you said, you know, we're gonna we're not gonna be able to fix the the whole problem. One of my one of my favorite sayings I like to to tell people, and I'm trying to you know recruit them to be involved in like Big Brothers Big Sisters or one of those programs is. It's really, really hard to change the world, but it's really, really easy to change a person's world. Exactly. And if you, if everybody starts taking a look at it from that perspective, those people collectively start to become yeah. that 1%, you know, that 2%. You know, I beat up on the, the church community law because I'm a pastor and I'm allowed to. And uh, <laughs> I figure, you know, so I'm in the club. I got the card, you know, baptized, ready, born again, let's go, somebody. And, and since I'm in the club, I can say something. You know, it's really interesting. I was 
up one night bored. So what do I do when I'm bored? I look up statistics. And, and um, do you know that poverty, this is crazy. There, the number of followers of Christ in the world, which is Christian and Catholic together, outnumber people living in poverty three to one. And if the Judeo-Christian world would just take the very basic gospel of treat others the way you want to be treated, feed your neighbor. Actually, poverty could be fixed just by taking care of the people that followers live around. Right. And it's just, it's, I think a lot of people think it's such a big task to take care of. But you have to think in big brothers, big sisters, if you stop the generational poverty with that one young person, you have literally stopped generational poverty for an entire generation of people. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, that multiplies real quick. You know, it's he, like a ripple effect. Yeah. They get with someone and, you know, they have a significant other and then they may have two or three kids. And then each of those two or three kids has two or three kids themselves. And, you know, now you're at, I don't know that exact math, yeah. like 12 to 15 people already. And that's in two generations. We're working on a white paper right now. So if you go to our website, dc-ind.org, you can see it here in a few weeks. But this is interesting. If the state of Indiana is going to spend about $1.6 million per single mom and child during that mother's lifetime, not the child's, the mother's. So the state of Indiana is going to spend about $1.6 million in different kind of benefits and assistance to that family. Sure. You know, feeding reduced lunches, like all the things you can think of. Think about the savings. If we intervene in that single mom in that child's life, uh, think about the savings to the taxpayers once we break that cycle and the state of Indiana is no longer paying for that single mom and then their child and then their child and then their child and then their child right. and the ripple effect that's going to create. And think about what's going to happen in our communities. So if you look at where the high crime rates are on the east side, the west side, North Michigan Avenue, the different places, what's the number one factor that ties them all together? People are living at or below poverty. These are crimes of desperation. These are crimes where people are desperate for food and housing, and they aren't treated with dignity and respect and individualism. So think what's going to happen in our communities as we at the Dream Center, our heart is, hey, let's pull them out. Let's give them the training they need. Let's get them to be resilient and on their own two feet. Our goal is that they will have a stronger heart, a stronger body, a stronger spirit, and a stronger checkbook, and then go right back into your neighborhood and buy a home. Imagine what's going to happen in our communities over five, ten years Absolutely. when we are pulling these families systematically out of poverty and raising their responsibility to get back in their neighborhood. Those neighborhoods are going to be begin to change organically over time. Well, and, and I had the sort of the I, I'd call it the, the the luxury of visiting the L.A. Dream Center with with Mike. And uh, one I think you can't. One of the other things you can't uh, overemphasize too is at that Dream Center. A lot of the people that had successfully completed that program and they were now self-sustained were now also coming back and yeah. pouring back into other people that were where they were a couple exactly. of years ago. And so then you've sort of not only created this uh, chain of success, but now you've created this group of individuals that understand it and will be able to pour back into the same people yeah. that they were, were like just maybe a year or two ago. It's a beautiful thing. What are uh, what are some of your most wholesome moments uh, with your interaction with you know homeless people or maybe the Christian community helping homeless people? What are what are some moments that you think back and like really give you hope? You know, there's several. I I love to bring people along for the journey so they think differently about it. And what I love the most is interacting with you know Brad. Like for example, you came out to LA with me. Um, and you got to see our work and, and I know that that whole experience out there in Los Angeles, um, you know, 
gave you a different perspective on how we approach the homeless. And it's not some unattainable thing that actually can be achieved. Um, I have a lot of folks who've never knocked on the door and passed out the middle of their life. And one of my favorite things in the entire world, and Brad can tell you this, is take them down the skid row and say, oh, I'll see you on the other side. And um, I just walk away from them. It's like, hope they make it. Good thing they signed those waivers in Jesus' name. you know. And, um, and really just and teaching people, hey, don't just pass on the middle and pray. Um, ask them why they're here. And I'll never forget someone was like, oh, won't that be offensive? I'm like, no, because when a homeless individual or someone living in poverty and they go to the different agencies, they're just a number. And they need someone to listen to the story of, I didn't always want to be like this right. because stories matter. Absolutely. And one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, actually, you know, Devin, when you're in high school and, and you and your friends would serve, one of my favorite moments is looking down the street in downtown Indianapolis for serving the homeless on Thursday nights and seeing a group of students sitting with a homeless person on the corner. We would pass out hot dogs and um, they would eat, be eating their hot dog together and just talking. And the homeless person, would we would train our students to say, hey, tell me, how long have you been here and why are you here? Um, because at, for that moment, that individual who's experiencing homelessness and poverty can actually share their story of, I didn't always want to end like this, and let me tell you why I'm here. Stories matter. Absolutely. And I think one of the most wholesome moments is being able to see the interaction uh, between people who are serving and people who are being served. And what's really interesting about it is for that moment, the homeless individual or the person living in poverty that we are serving they're actually serving our volunteers I by changing their perspective. There's been a few people that we walked up to and we started talking to them like they were homeless to find out that they weren't. That's just how they dressed. And that was the most embarrassing <laughs> shit ever. We're just here. We're not actually living here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had a couple misses here and there. You know, I've never forgot. I was in Hollywood. This is so funny. And we were passing out. We were doing, uh, typically when I do a trip to LA, we do Skid Row. We do the homeless in Hollywood, Venice Beach and different places. We're in Hollywood passing out bottles of water and these little kits. And I walked up to this lady and offered her a bottle of water. And she, she was like, do you think I'm homeless? I used to be an actress. I live over there. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I just said, well, sister, we're just here blessing people. And she goes, I know my life's been rough, but I don't look that bad. And uh, I just slowly walked away. Well, you and still like a bottle of water? <laughs> walked to the other side of the street and sat down and had a taco. thought, well, I think I'm done for the night. Um, but those are some of the great moments. And. You know, what's well, and the, it does give you perspective. I mean, yeah. it's it's kind of like, you know, me having been a prosecutor and now being a, a defense attorney. When when you're a prosecutor, pieces of people are pieces of paper. You exactly. don't know a single thing about how they got to. Now I know everything about them. You know how they got to where they are, and it's way more complex, more complicated than it was when I was a prosecutor. It's sure. not just they broke the law. There's reasons why. There's a story exactly. behind the the why and how they got there, and 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 so. You know, obviously, having seen what um, L.A. has done and, and anybody that's listening, if you ever get an opportunity, if you're just out there visiting or you, you get involved with the Dream Center, if you have an opportunity to, to visit what they do, it's pretty incredible. It's emotional to see the the work they're doing there. Uh, tell all of our listeners, uh, my kind of where Dream Center Indianapolis is and where, you know, where is it going to be three, four, five years from now? Sure. So. Um, we have started our pilot program. We have purchased a building at 8091 uh, Township Line Road, which is a medical arts building where we're bringing all of our partners and we're bringing our workforce partners and mission partners in. And we have picked, uh, we have 238 people on our wait list, which is unbelievable to me. And we have identified our first single moms that will be moving into 
the apartments across the street and going on this journey with us. And hopefully we will have about 24 to 30 starting this summer uh, doing our proof of concept. Right now we're working with a healthcare partner to develop one of their hospital campuses into our main campus in the future. We'll be announcing that in the next couple of months as we continue to work with them on that. That's where we're at. You can serve with us today. There's a lot of places, areas to serve. You can go uh, to the motels where we go and pass out meals and we navigate services there. We hook families up with health insurance and child care vouchers and, and get to know them and people can join our wait list uh, that are living in the motel. You can also sign up to be trained to become a life coach, a circle of support, and get involved in our work. Or you can um, shoot me an email and say, hey, I want to be a donor, and I'll take you on a donor trip to L.A. and um, do what I do best, which is take you to Skid Row and leave you there until you give a donation, then you get back on the bus. And uh, <laughs> uh, that's how we do it. works out great, you know. Uh, but there's lots of ways if you're, if you're interested in um, becoming a contributor and joining that family, whether it's $10 a month or, you know, $100 a month. There's lots of ways to do that. Just go to our website, dc-indy.org. That's dc-indy.org. And you can sign up to serve, get involved, get more information, set a meeting with me or one of our staff members, and we can uh, figure out where to plug you and your family or business in. And, you know, that three to f- three, to three, four, five-year vision, how many, how many families, individuals are you ultimately looking to try to serve? With our campus, we're going to be building, we're going to have 150 to 160 apartments inside the campus. However, our services are going to be open for everyone in the community. The workforce training, the financial literacy, the daycare. The beautiful thing about that is we're going to be able to serve up to five to 550 people a day uh, can come through our campus. So sky is really the limit. Sure. And then it's such an easy, um, our pathway program is such a simple program that anyone can do it. And we're looking to just give it away. If a nonprofit wants to adapt what we're doing, um, we'll give it all away to them. God put it on my heart, built, create it. Build it, give it away. It's mine, not yours. And so that's what we plan to do. And obviously the goal at the end of the 12 to 18 months, the person's uh, learned how to be financially responsible, learned a skill, a trade, something that's marketable. Um, I know you you guys are working with partnerships between different companies. It's really, really, it's really, really easy here in Indianapolis to get a salary of 55,000 a year. Right. And here in Indiana, it takes 55,000 a year to be resilient. The definition of resilience is living free of outside support. That, that, that doesn't include with children though, right? That's just by yourself or does it include children? That's with children. Yeah. If you, if you make a salary of 55 to 60,000 a year, you, you have the opportunity, um, to be totally resilient. Cause here's the interesting thing. The programming that's out there like childcare vouchers and housing vouchers, it's cut off at 24,000 if you're single, 28,000 if you have children. The gap between the 28,000 and the 55,000 seems unattainable. Right. And it really isn't. And so what we're gonna be able to do is provide the workforce training in health and human services, which includes nursing, uh, pharmacy tech, radiation tech, surgery tech, and plant management in the hospital like HVAC and things like that. We're going to provide technology training, Google certification, uh, which is going to be great. EV mechanics, which is awesome. We have a nine-week program to become an EV mechanic. They make 80000 a year. Only nine weeks? It's only nine weeks because to be an EV mechanic, you don't have to be an electrician. You have to know how to read the battery software and reboot the batteries in a sequence that makes the car run again. It's the easiest thing in the world, and we're really excited to get that going as well as the intro to trade. So if you want to be an HVAC, a plumber, an electrician, all that's going to be provided under a roof. And at the end of the 12 or 18 months, they're going to be on their way to that salary of 55 or more. And we will 
match what's in their savings account, $3 to one, up to five grand. They can have up to $15,000 in their savings account or their checking account that needs to be used for housing, um, automotive, child care, or education. And they'll be physically strong with our partnerships with the hospital, with the stress center, with our health and wellness partners, the dentist, the eye doctor. One of the coolest moments, and I'll kind of end with this, one of the coolest moments I ever experienced at the Dream Center in L.A., I was there for a couple of weeks, and a lady I met at the very, very beginning, um, because of her drug use, she had really bad teeth, and I never saw her smile. And I'll never forget, uh, she got all her teeth fixed and walked into the Dream Center for the first time smiling, and she had tears running down her eyes and saying, I honestly can't remember the last time I had the courage to smile. And that completely changed her life. Something as simple yeah. as dental care so that um, someone isn't embarrassed to smile. Right. And so we have great dentist partners. It's, it's just going to be amazing. And I've, the folks who are getting on, like, you know, Brad, you've been involved since the beginning, and Devin, you have too. Um, the special group of people that's funded this project and provided resources for this project and volunteered for this project, there's a special place in heaven for them because this is going to revolutionize here in Indiana, the nonprofit space, and um, it's going to be really cool for that group of people to look back yeah. And drive down the road and see know, the fruits of their efforts. Brad, do you have grandchildren yet? You have any grandkids? Good God, yet? no. Uh, didn't know if you had grandkids yet. <laughs> I hope not. Um, he might, you know, it's not prophecy, but I'm just saying. So, but Brad, think how cool it's going to be one day, you know, when you're Grandpa Brad and you're in a Lincoln. Um, I just feel like you're going to have a, you know, a Lincoln Continental at some point <laughs> and smoking a pipe. I don't know. I think he's going to drive a Beetle. He seems to get more feminism in him <laughs> as he gets older. There we go. <laughs> Whatever you do, just don't, just don't. We a, made it to the 50-minute mark. That's pretty uh, good. Just don't drive a Mitsubishi Eclipse, brother. And uh, <laughs> But as you're, as you're driving and you've got little, you know, granddaughter Sally in the back seat, how cool is it going to be uh, for you to drive by one day and Sally goes, hey, Grandpa, is that the building you built? And that's the coolest thing. It's not about me. It's not, I'm not the face of any of this. It's our donors. It's our people. It's our first participants. And it's going to be really cool when all this is done and I'm dead and gone for this organization that has 30 years of success in Los Angeles now being launched here in Indianapolis for it to just continue and grow and impact the world for this generation and generations to come. I want to add this tidbit for our listeners. It would, it, on its face, it would seem like an organization like this would be hard for someone to get in and volunteer their time or their money or just find some way to help out, but it really isn't. You know, you can send an email uh, through the address he sent. I'm pretty sure that uh, there's a spot on the website where you can, like, sign up to be a volunteer as well, right? Yeah, you just go to dc-indy.org, and you can click serve, give, or I want more information. Yeah, so typically with ambitious projects like this, you know, it may seem way out of your league, but it really isn't. It just takes some free time and, you know, the the want to help. Exactly. And, you know, within a few days you can be on the streets helping someone or, you know, offering your services in another way, whether once the Dream Center's up and you want to be a therapist or a nurse or anything like that. And uh, especially as once the Dream Center gets going, you know, their support staff, I imagine, are going to be paid because – nurses and whatnot and pastor mike has usually i don't want to say notoriously but i don't know the positive version of that word but paid his uh workers very well so you know that is also something that would incentivize people to come help because i think you have a couple open positions listed now right we do we're actually hiring for a development coordinator and a programming coordinator and those are great jobs it's 50 to seventy thousand a year for both of them so all that's on our website too you can pick um 
to join our talent network <laughs> and I will interview you, uh, which is really putting you in an awkward position, seeing how you, how you act. And if I think it's humorous, you're probably pretty much going to get hired <laughs> and uh, it's going to be really good. So we're going to have lots of employment opportunities, but it's just like what you said, Devin, it's not hard. We, we cannot do this alone. It's going to take an army of people to do it. Everyone has something to give. I believe, you know, not to get a little preachy, but I believe the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit manifest in people's lives according to the need around them. Right. And if you want to live your best life, get around people that need you to live your best life. And it will be just remarkable. You will, you will, you will walk away way more blessed than the people that we serve on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Yeah, I really like the idea because, you know, typically, especially with a lot of nonprofits, if you want to help people, you have to sacrifice pay. You have to sacrifice your own some of your own life comforts to help other people br- build their life comforts. And uh, with this organization, you really, you don't sacrifice that at all. You know, there's, we haven't, there's an army of donors and always looking for more. And there are people that actually care too. Like it's not people that are writing a check and then fucking off. Like these are people that could also be passing out food as well. So, you know, to get in something where even, even like the top, echelon like yourself and you know the people that you work with like uh like your finance manager someone like that you, they're, they're still on the streets so you know with, with these other like nonprofits, you probably don't even know who owns the place like he's definitely yeah. not there yeah. you know what i mean uh but with this you know the it's so easy to reach out to the heads of the organization because you yeah. guys are there all the time we're very accessible and we don't ask anyone to do things we don't do so i'm at every single outreach I love it. Our donors are there. Our board members are there. Um, our officers of the organization are there. It's great. We're in it to win it. And, you know, I look at it like this. Poverty is a serious issue. It's going to require serious people to solve it. And uh, it's really interesting when you look at, you know, kind of nonprofit management. Um, it's not going to be easy to solve poverty. And so why in the world, um, you know, Harvard graduate someone with an MBA and um, why would they sacrifice a couple hundred thousand a year um, making video games and get paid 70,000 to run a nonprofit. And it's kind of interesting. Like when you look at the mindset in nonprofit management, um, we celebrate somebody who makes a violent video game, but we get mad when a nonprofit leader makes 150 grand. (laughs) And so we are going to hire the best of the best and recruit and train the best of the best because I want this thing solved in my lifetime. I want to see that 10%, the 12% across the country become 11, become 10, become nine. Let's see how far we can get it. And that's not going to happen just because we high five people and say a prayer and pass out a sandwich. Right. It's going to happen because we have a think tank of people that are truly devoting time and the smartest people we can find to fix poverty for this generation and the generation to come. Absolutely. Well, for our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our uh, little three part ride here of Looking at uh, sort of the the beginning, the middle, and the end of the, yep. the issue of homelessness. This will be, I wouldn't say the end for sure. There's a lot more to discuss, but we definitely hit the important parts. And uh, this will wrap up our three-part series of discussing homelessness and especially how it uh, interacts with the judicial system and incarceration and how to help people out of that. And I want to thank you very much, our special guest, Pastor Mike, for coming out. Again, that's dc-indy.org. Uh, if you want to get involved, it's uh, it's uh, as someone that's uh, 
uh, grown to be part of it. It's I, I can't explain the, the amount of excitement I have over seeing what's going to happen with this. It's truly, truly got an opportunity to make a difference. So we appreciate you coming out. Thank today. you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pocket Law Talks. Until next, next time.